Welcome to the Shigon Podcast. This is your host, Jeff Fry. Today I have a very special guest, one of my old teammates, 14-year major league career, 296 career hitter, two-time all-star who played for the Brewers, the Rockies, the Mariners, the Padres, the Brewers again, the Twins, and the Diamondbacks. He also was on TV for two years as an analyst for the Brewers. He's been a scout since 2012 for the Angels. But most importantly, his lifetime war is 34.5, and I know that's very important to him. I'd like to welcome my very special guest to the Shigon Podcast, my old teammate, Jeff Cirillo. What's up, Rillo? Morning, Jeff. What's going on? Nothing, buddy. How you been? Doing good. Good, good. Just uh, out here in Seattle, Washington. Um, I got I got the landscaper outside. He's winterizing the house. It's starting to get cold. Already? Man. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's got a little bite. It was uh, 75 yesterday here in Texas. Played a little golf and uh, drove to my senior league baseball game, only to realize that uh, the other team had forfeited, and I missed it, missed the message on the group text and uh, had to drive back home and watch the World Series. Well, that that's uh, I can't believe you guys are still playing. You know, I'm trying to get you on that 50 and over World Series team, that national, but I don't know. Judging by the video I saw, it look, doesn't look like the legs are working as good anymore. That was so bad. That was so bad. I, uh, Yeah, I think that was the day. I can't remember for sure what day that was. But one day I went and played 25 holes of golf, oh. rushed home, and then went and played baseball. And um, I, mean, I retired in 2002 because of my back. I had lower back problems. and. Uh, right. Kind of stiff after twenty five holes. I'm sure you can attest to that. It looked it looked stiff. It didn't. It looked painful, and I was like, "Oh man, I don't know if uh, he could roll through um, four straight days with nine innings." And we played three three double headers in three days, nine innings. I could do that. I could do it. I just you know I can't play twenty five holes of golf before. And actually, the game before I stole two bases, and then no way, really. Oh, I'm not stealing. Score, score. you know. I got my contract. My contract stipulates, and you know, granted, we're not getting paid to do this, but my contract's like, look, I like to pitch. I pitched four years in college. Uh, when I when I show up, I start, and I'll give you the ball when I'm done. I used to always go nine innings, but you know, that badge of honor. I checked that box, and I said I don't play the field, and I don't run the bases. So uh, <laughs> I, I, it tends to work for me, so I don't get hurt. <laughs> yeah, it's a. I think that's that's. The main goal every game is to try and not get hurt. Yeah, and do you slide when you steal? Heck yeah! We'll play oh my on. gosh, you yeah, are insane! Field, so. You're insane! Oh, yeah, and so, but it's kind of the softer turf where it doesn't right. really hurt to slide unless you land on the uh, the the bolts that are underneath the turf. <laughs> yes, yeah. Rip your leg up. But I did uh, last game. Uh, I hit a one-hop smash off the pitcher's kneecap. Nobody videoed that one. Uh, really? On the ground for five minutes in pain. Somehow he jumped up and was able to play, but uh, thankfully he was okay. Well, if I, have to, if I have to wear a cup, I'm not playing anymore. How about that? I don't step on the field without a cup. I don't understand how people 
I know you wore a cup when you played, but I, I can't step on the field without a cup. I don't care. Yeah, you're probably right. I'm probably too cheap. Then I'd have to go buy one. <laughs> I got a spare one, man. I'll send it to you. It's just slightly used. <laughs> anyway, so you, have you been watching the World Series? I have. I watched last night. Um, boy, that, that Javier, he's pretty good. Got a little invisible fastball, doesn't he? Yeah, I'm thinking, I'm sitting there watching this dude going, I don't think it would be much fun facing that guy. No, you can just tell. I mean, those are guys with, I mean, and you know as well as I do, it's not like the Phillies haven't been hot. So there's a lot of hitters that are going up to the plate pretty confident and, you know, no, to no hit that team where they're at in the season and the postseason, the way they're swinging the bat is is quite remarkable. Yeah, on the road too. I mean, that, I mean, the Citizens Bank ballpark, man, that place is rocking. Right. And it's a good place to hit too. It's not like the old vet. That place is a good place to hit. See, I don't ever remember a course field ever rocking like Citizens Bank Field's rocking right now, but, but I only played there for two months. Um, did you ever play when you were with the Rockies? Did you guys ever make it to the playoffs? No, I think when we, when we got you, we were kind of on that, that decline. You know, the year before was rocking pretty good when I think it was like the second year in franchise history that we had a winning record, right? We went 82 and 80, and then we signed Nagel and Hampton to kind of put us over the hump. And I think for the first month it was okay. And then those two pitchers were used to, you know, being super successful. And then they're trying to have to recreate in course field. And, and it was a beast, right? It's hard to be a pitcher there. Yeah. But somehow Brian Bohannon thrived in course field. <laughs> I know. Just give him some chicken wings and he's ready to go. Couple beers and he's ready to roll, man. Brian Bohan. Bohannon. Flash from the past, right? Right, right, right. So, you know, I uh, still uh, talk to uh, Milo. You guys call him Milo. I call him Hambone. Mike Hamilton. Who oh, yeah. I love him. Back to Texas and uh, is running a successful select baseball organization and prosper. So I talk to Mikey about four or five times a week, and he's doing well. Just moved Good. out to the lake. You talk to him still? You know what? Now that you remind me, I'm going to have to send him a text because I haven't in a while. Yeah, he's doing good. His son, uh, Max, is about 6'4", throwing 95 miles an hour at McClendon Junior College. Really? Yes. Yeah. Wow. yeah. I, didn't see, I didn't see much athleticism out of Hamilton, but it's hard to see it when he's sitting behind the video. Meredith was very, very uh, uh, athletic. Meredith was like, I think, a runner or a swimmer in high school, so obviously Max got that athleticism from her. Totally. I mean, no doubt. I mean... I mean, I wanted. To, I didn't ever. I never fact check Hamilton about the Rangers being on the forty man or doing some stuff like that. I'm like, mm, okay, we're just gonna let that one go. <laughs> no, I don't think he was ever on the forty man. <laughs> he did. Like, you know what? Kudos to you. I believe you. <laughs> no, but Mikey's great. Um, <laughs> so we were teammates for two months um, in 2000. I got traded at the deadline from the Red Sox to the Rockies. Met you guys in Milwaukee. Uh, had played against you quite a bit when you were playing for the Brewers early in your career. But, uh, I mean, I thoroughly enjoyed the two months I spent with the Rockies getting to know you and, and Mike. I mean, obviously I knew Mike, but uh, Helton, Larry Walker, Brett Main. I mean, we, had some, we had some good players, man, and I really enjoyed playing those two months for Colorado. So that was in 2000 then? Yes. Yeah, so we, we brought you over to get us over the hump. Uh, yeah, I don't know about that. I hit three fifty six, but I only played half the time. Talk yeah, you were great. You you came in right away and uh, 
you know, some guys kind of need, need a little feeling process, right? Mm-hmm. You came right in. I think they put you right down there in the corner with me and Helton. And, uh, and then you broke the TV. So that was cool. <laughs> that was accident. You know, that was accident. I think I don't really remember how it went down, but uh, I do remember breaking the TV. But I love that team. I, I love the uh, one of the things that really stood out to me about that team that felt like we were together, man, because and I'd never been on a team that stretched in the, the clubhouse. Every other team, you go out on the field and everybody's in their own little groups and not much uh, conversation going on with everybody. But we'd go and stretch. Brad would lead stretch. Hilton would run the music. And one day it's the Dixie Chicks. And next day it's Salsa. And the next day it's uh, Eminem. And it just seemed like we were together. I totally forgot about stretching inside. Um, but yeah, <laughs> with the bands. That's right. We didn't stretch inside the clubhouse. Yeah. But, but I mean, you know, and Hilton... To me, Helton was one of the best teammates I ever had. The dude was just seemed like everybody respected Todd Helton. Not only was he a a great player, but a team player. And he went around to everybody. It didn't matter where you were from, what nationality you were. Todd Helton was going to mess with you a little bit. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And he, uh, you know, that year, the year I got traded, it was playing with Nomar in Boston. Nomar hit 372 and won the batting title. I get traded to the Rockies, and Helton hits 372 for the Rockies and wins the batting title. So I played with two guys in one year that both won the batting titles. And they're just completely opposite hitters. Right. Well, Todd Helton that year was hitting 400, I think, going into September almost. Wow. You know, so he was incredible, and he wasn't just doing it at Coors Field. Obviously, his numbers at Coors Field were better, but... He was getting hits on the road and it it didn't matter. You know, I mean, you and I, I mean, we fought for every pitch, you know, every at bat, you know, and that's one thing I always respected about you. And I knew, right. Cause I, I would read, you know, the, the media guides coming through and I was like, Oh, this Jeff Fry, Mike, he's a survivor. Right. So, you know, those guys that, that every at bat was important in the minor leagues. Every game was important. Right. Because, you know, your your leash was very short. There was no there was no net that was going to catch either one of us. And so but getting back to Helton, you know, and we fought at bat to at bat. This guy was pitch to pitch fighting. So never, you know, I don't think that we gave away too many at bats that season that Helton, when he was hitting 400. It was he was fighting every pitch, which is hard to do, as you know. Yeah. And. Just comparing like Nomar, the way Nomar hit to, to Helton. So Nomar would go up there and he'd do his little rocking with his toes and kicking his heels and stuff and get locked in. It didn't matter what the pitcher threw. It could be the first pitch of the game. Slider, hanging breaking ball, change up or fastball, and he would be on it. And I'm like, how are you? I, I mean, I'm going to sit on a first pitch fastball and I might swing leading off the game. Probably not. That's not my job, but that dude was on everything. And then I go to Colorado, and Helton was a completely different style of hitter. He tracked the fastball, from what I remember, and adjusted to the off speed. But you could throw a fastball at Helton's chest, and he would hit it, pull it over the first base dugout in the third deck. And I'm like, how does he do that? Agreed. I remember that some a lot of two strikes, ball down and in, and he'd do a jump swing on a ball in. I'm like, whoa, and keep it fair, like you're talking about. You know, that one pitch where lefties, you know, belt high up and in. And like you said, he would pull his hands in and 
hit it in the third deck foul or do a jump swing. I mean, he, like you said, that season, he was kind of the matrix, right? Just doing some crazy things. It was. And, and I mean, Larry Walker was, was also there and he was a great player and a great hitter, but I mean, he had a completely different style of hitting And My point in all this is that there's just not one way to hit. And, you had your style, I had mine, Helton had his, Nomar, Larry Walker. We all have to find out what works for us and try to be the best at doing it that way. And, you know, what I see on social media um, is that now we're trying to teach everybody to hit like Aaron Judge. Everybody hits the same. It's like, that wouldn't have worked for me or you or, or some other guys that aren't 6'7", 280. And it just blows me away that people are believing that there's one way to hit. Right, right. I mean, just take it, you're a golfer, you know, and I remember, and I'm not a great golfer, um, but I remember I took one lesson probably about 10 years ago, and I didn't know anything about any golfers, you know, Tiger Woods, Jack Luxury. He's like, Jeff, he goes, your swing reminds me. It's like, there's a guy that's like Jim Furyk, and I'm like, sweet. I'm like, God, this guy thinks I got a, a PJ type swing. And then I look at Jim Furyk's swing, and you're like, oh, that's not, that's kind of unconventional, or even like, Lee Trevino's or Sebi, like, right, like you said, there's a lot of ways to skin a cat, you know? And so one way doesn't work for all. No. And, and, you know, Jim Furyk, I'm sure when people first saw Jim Furyk swing, they're like, who's this dude? How's this guy going to play on this tour with all these studs out here? And look at the incredible career. He's probably a hall of fame golfer with that unusual, unorthodox style of swing. Right. I got a question for you. There's a, and, and Jeff Fry does a great job of calling these guys out, but there's a, all this on social media, there's a search for a perfect swing. And I don't believe there is such a thing, but very little talk about approach. What was your approach when you stepped in the batter's box? And remember, we, we've got tons of kids listening to this grassroots, minor leaguers. I'd love to hear what your approach was when you stepped into the box as a hitter. My approach was basically to, you know, hunt the fastball early in the count, you know, and it depending on what the situation of, of the game was, right? If it was, you know, guy in third, less than two outs or second and third and less than two outs, I'm looking first pitch breaking ball every time out over the plate. And because I know that the pitcher is going to try and get ahead. Look, he's either, there's only two ways he's going to go about it because think about a pitcher. He knows that there's money on the line down there at third base. So what's he going to do if he's right-handed? He's going to try and break me off and jam me hard. Or he's going to try and make me get out in front and pull something to the third baseman to where he saves his ERA. So I would, my approach with guys on runners scoring position, I would look middle of the field and I'd sit breaking ball until I got a strike and maybe adjust. But early in the count, game by game, I'm looking fastball and then read and reacting as the at bat goes along. And then with two strikes, you know, I'm protecting away. I'm kind of sitting, I'm not sitting fastball, I'm not sitting breaking ball, I'm sitting more like slider and just, you know, nine one one on the ball in and and protecting the pitch away. I like that, Frito. What about you? Well, I always looked fastball, and uh, you know, I heard Derek Jeter mention this one day in um, one of his interviews that uh, he looked fastball middle of the plate, and that's exactly what I did. Um, I wouldn't if he threw me a fastball right down the middle. I was going to try and hit it hard somewhere. Now, if you threw a fastball for a strike away, or maybe in on inside on the inside corner early in the count and it's not a pitch that I want to hit I'm not going to swing at it just because it's a strike doesn't mean I have to swing at it 
And so I would hunt the fastball. And like Rillo said, you know, depending on it all depended on the game situation. Now, runner on third base, a lot of times with a guy like me, they would move the infield in. So I would look for a pitch out over the plate, maybe up to try and drive to the big part of the field to at least get that run home. That was my job. Get that guy home. Not to hit a two-run homer or a double. You know, nobody on, two outs, I'm trying to hit a double. I'm trying to get in scoring position. So it all depended uh, on the game situation, but I would look fastball with two strikes. I would look, still look fastball, but middle away, try to battle if they came inside because that was where they tried to get me out. But look fastball middle away and adjust to the off-speed pitches. Yeah. That's great info for the kids out there. I appreciate that. Yeah, and so Rillo, uh, who stands out to you? Um, First off, are the guys that you played with? I know you played with some great hitters. Uh, did you play with Sheffield in Milwaukee? No. Okay. No. Uh, who were the Who were the studs in Milwaukee when you were there? Um, you know, there were different type of hitters, right? You know, there was Greg Vaughn, who was kind of, you know, I mean, he used a really heavy bat, and he was trying to catch the ball out in front, right? And he used a heavy bat with a big barrel, and he was trying to pull the ball, you know, so – but his job was to hit homers, but he still thought about a middle of the field type of, of approach, but he was trying to get the head started. Um, you know, guys like myself, like Vino was a good hitter. Mark Loretta was a great hitter, you know, and just the same thing. You know, I, I, I was always like, look, you know, um, and this was like trial by error, obviously, you know, we didn't have a ton of video back then. Then I went to Seattle, there was all kinds of video and they're putting, you know, graphs on the thing and putting little, um, tapes on the video and the side angle and i'm like whoa this is something different you know and it didn't really work for me so you know after an unsuccessful bat i tell kids all the time and i used to tell this to like jj hardy and ricky weeks and prince fielder when they were first coming up i'm like look you know instead of going back and looking at that video because the video as you know frito like when you're struggling in the major leagues right you know you go back to you you throw your hit tape in there right and in the wintertime, that hit tape looks great. When you're struggling and you watch that hit tape during the season, yeah, it gives you a little confidence. You're like, man, that second base was right there. Frito, God, he just missed that ball by an inch. God, that's not a great thing. So what I'm saying is, is that whatever you want to see on the video, you'll see, right? If you're in a good space, like, oh, that was a good swing. But, you know, and then when you're not going well or you're being unsuccessful, you're like, oh, that looks wrong. That looks wrong. That looks wrong. So we kind of become a slave to that video. So what I would tell those guys, and I tell young hitters, I'm like, look, after an unsuccessful at bat, you know, the three things that I would tell myself or ask myself is like, was I engaged with the pitcher? You know, was it just a battle between me and the arm, right? So was I single-minded focused? Was I thinking about my hands or anything? Did I see the ball basically out of his hand? Was I just like intent on just me and the pitcher? That was the one. The second one was like, was my upper body loose and relaxed or was I in the I gotta modes or I, I gotta get a hit here. Right. You know what happens when we get in the, I gotta, you know, you're getting smaller and smaller and that chest is getting tighter and tighter. And the third thing I would ask myself is like over the course of that one at bat, that unsuccessful bat, did I swing at strikes throughout that at bat? So those three things were the three questions that I would ask myself. And that was it. I wouldn't go to the video and the only time I'd ever go to videos, if I had a, a good hit and I hit a double or a home run, yeah, you want to reinforce that. But all this other stuff, you know, those are the three simple things that I would, would quantify of a good at bat. Yeah, and it's paralysis by analysis. I mean, I see these guys 
plan today that after every at bath they go look at this video and you know, really the only time I know we didn't have access to that stuff but really the only times I would go in and look at video of an at bat I just had was if I felt the umpire called a strike on me that wasn't a strike because I wanted to know because I had a pretty good idea of the strike zone just like you did and I felt like if that umpire is giving the guy too much outside or maybe this pitch is low or high I want to go see it and the only other time I would look at video was if I couldn't quite figure out why I was struggling. And, man, I keep feel like I'm on that pitch and I might be pulling off. And why am I popping it up? And I'd go in there and see that norm, usually it was my front shoulder flying out because I'm getting pull happy. And I was just like, all right, I got to stay more closed and use the big part of the field and try and drive the ball up the middle. That's the only time I would ever look at it. Right. And you see today, all these guys have an iPad in the dugout. I know. They have <laughs> I mean, I you know, saw. How would a Buddy Bell, Buddy Bell, would lock the lock the bottom video room, right? Yeah, and and you know, I saw the other night, and I I like McCullers, and I played with his dad, but when I saw his quote about, uh, you know, he went and looked at the iPad, and the iPad said that he had good stuff and he was doing all right. I'm like, you've already given up five home runs. Who cares? How can whatever's on that iPad um, that you read that you're looking at is is not telling you the truth because you give up five home runs. So obviously something's not going well. Right. Right. And he probably did have good stuff and maybe he was tipping his pitches or whatever. That is the one thing that I feel that is an advantage for the hitters today is if you have people that can, you know, put the high resolution cameras and they can still frame it and find something where a pitcher might be tipping something. But you know, as well as I do that just because he's tipping his pitch or doing something like that, it's really hard to believe it until you really see it and trust it. Right. You know, it's like, Oh, he's flaring his glove. You're like, man, I'm just not seeing it because you know, again, you're trying to hit a pitch that's coming in and reacting to it. It's hard to look for a tilt, a tell on something like that. Yeah. And you're right. Because I played with some guys, especially in Toronto when I went and played in Toronto in 2001 and Delgado was amazing at it. Jose Cruz jr and Cito Gaston. So they had this book that would say, all right, this guy, uh, Rod Beck, he does this with his finger every time he throws a fork ball, or this guy does this. And so they would crush those guys knowing what they're throwing. But then we go face somebody that we didn't know and he'd dominate us and he wouldn't have great stuff. I was like, so I didn't really want to know that stuff. The only time I can remember in my career watching a guy pitch and looking at his glove and no, thinking that I know that he what he's throwing was Brad Radke. And you remember Radke, he was pretty tough. He had a little, you know, that slider. And so I set slider and got a base hit. But the, most of the time, I didn't feel comfortable looking for anything other than a fastball. And I was like, you got to be 100% certain he's throwing something else to not be looking for a fastball. Because if I'm looking for a 75-mile-an-hour hang curveball, and he throws 90 up and in, I might not be able to get out of the way. Right, right. You have to trust it 100%, you know? I mean, I was never a believer in all these guys and they all these these variable signs at second base and, like, sign stealing. And I'm like, I'm not going to give the hitter – first of all, you know, I'm not going to give – if I'm not completely sure, 
I'm not going to give them. And a lot of times, Frito, I didn't really want to know the pitches at second base. It's like, oh, this guy's throwing a breaking ball. You know what happens? Because then you're going to swing at the breaking ball that's a little off the plate. Because like, oh, I'm guessing right. I got the pitch. So I was never huge on on giving signs. You know, you'd kind of do the faint, like changing like fingers or stepping around. But that was just for show, right? That was just to get in the pitcher's head to make him go out there and change his signs, right? Yeah, just messing with him. There, uh, uh, exactly. To, to make them think you have their signs and you know how paranoid those guys are. And you could just sit there and look in and turn your head, not knowing anything. And next thing you know, he calls the catcher out. Hey, these guys are, you know what I mean? It's like, it's like head games you play with these guys. Right. I, I do think that I like the, the I, mean, I don't know how you, you stance on the, 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 the little buttons that they're pushing now and the, the pitcher has an ear thing. Whatever, and I think next year will be will be good having the pitch clock because doing a lot of minor league games, being a scout this year, it was great. I got to tell you, some of those games were rolling like two hours and fifteen minutes, two thirty. You know, get them in, get them out. Right? I think it'll help the game. So, are you a fan of the the whatever the that pitch clock they have in their hats or whatever? To, to... I am a fan of that. I'm anything that gets the game moving. You know, like last night. I mean, Javier. I mean, throwing a no-hitter, I mean, but the game was still in the four-hour range, right? And a 5 nothing baseball game. And the guy threw a no-hitter. You know, and it was still four-hour four hour game, right? Yeah. And I don't know. I mean, I'm not a huge fan because I really haven't seen it much in the Meyer Leagues like you have um, when you're scouting and stuff. But I, I have heard a lot of good reviews on it. I'm just curious as what's going to be – what's going to happen when Clayton Kershaw – as a runner on third and in a big spot in a game. And he does that long, slow wind up and he's not even done yet. And all of a sudden the umpire goes, ball, ball, run, come home, move, run on second, move to third. If it's going to be like, if it's going to, if the guys who've been in the game for 10 years or more are going to be able to adjust to this type of stuff. Well, I think baseball's not thinking about Clayton Kershaw. They're thinking about the new new guys coming through. And like I said, the hitters and the pitchers that get on it. I mean, as an infielder, if you were playing behind it, you would love it. Yet as a hitter now, and you know, and they did give them kind of one, like the hitter would get one timeout, right? So let's say that you took a bad swing and you're on a two-strike count, right? And you're just like, okay, I need to get my bearings here and kind of regroup. You do get one timeout to kind of settle yourself. Um, but I, I think that that one rule, you will enjoy it. And if you were playing second base, you would love it because, you know, you're on your toes. You're ready to go. Yeah, I, I, it's tough playing behind guys who take 30 seconds. I I can attest to that. But, uh, yeah, we'll see. So what are, what are your thoughts on uh, getting rid of the shift? Um, I think that, well, I think that you should be able to put your second base wherever you want. You know, and I don't think the one thing I don't like is, is that all the infielders have to have their feet on the dirt. You know, if second baseman want to go in right field and they have a good arm, then you should be able to, if Albert Pujols is running a seven flat down the line or whatever he's running, you know, your shortstop should be able to be playing in short left field. You know, I mean, it's no different if Juan Pierre is batting, you know, the third baseman's going to get in because you know why you got to respect the tool of his speed. So as far as the shift goes, I think that um, I'm not sure on that one. Obviously, you know, we know why it's happening because 25% of all outcomes are strikeouts, right? And as people who live in the United States, 
you know, it's the reason that, you know, I don't really love soccer, right? Because, you know, who wants, you know, you, you'll, you'll love to see a no hitter or even the Mariners when they play an 18 inning game playoff game, you know, that's kind of cool. Right. But over 162 games, you know, those shutouts aren't as fun to watch. So I don't know. I, I, I understand where you're coming from. Like, Hey man, just beat the shift, you know? And I get that. I think that it's a disadvantage actually to righties more than lefties. I think that lefties are like, sweet. Yeah. Get your feet on the dirt. Yeah, how are they gonna how are they gonna uh, monitor that? I mean, what's the penalty for if I one pitch I don't have both feet on the dirt? Is it a ball or something? That's a good question. You know, it's remember back in the day when they kind of put the Maddox and the Glavin rule in place. Remember they put that little um a box behind home plate for that the catcher had to sit in it, right? Yeah, because in the middle of the other batter's box caught getting strikes. Right, right. Hirschback is just like, yep, that's a strike. Like, come Not on. Not in the air. It's a strike. <laughs> yeah, Glavin and Maddox getting gold gloves every year because, you know, they're just rolling that ball off off the black on the outside part. It's like, what can you do with that pitch? Just poke at it and hit a little comebacker, right? Yeah. And, and so when I see that that uh, little box on the TV now, I forget what it's called, the K-Zone or whatever, and I'm like, see these pitches that are just a fraction outside of these boxes getting called balls. Uh, and I'm like, that was a strike 99% of the time when we played. Yes. Yes. I remember Jeremy Burnett's and there's a good hitter that was with the Brewers and, uh, and he was a guy that's, you know, and he, he had a lot of confidence, right. And bravado. And, and he was going to go year to year with the Brewers, right. Cause he felt that, you know, he make more money doing it that way and he was trusting his things but then the brewers when we got him in 97 when we went over to the national league in 98 and he was with the mets he's like and he signed a four-year deal he's like nope he goes i've played in this league before he goes i know how those national league umpires are you know and to your point you know the american league umpires before they consolidated and unionized or whatever they did and made one one group of umpires, there was a National League set of umpires and there was an American League set of umpires. And the National League umpires, I remember watching like Steve Traxel, you know, before there there was the, you know, DirecTV and the MLB package, you know, you'd watch that day game at Wrigley and you're watching Traxel or Maddox get these pitches that were like, there's no chance, right, to even hit it. You're going to give up on it every time. So I remember him signing a four-year deal based on the fact that we were moving to the National League. Yeah. I mean, those years when I was going, we were going to, I was with the Red Sox, we'd go to Atlanta to face Smoltz, Maddox, and Glavin. And, uh, you know, the Braves were pretty good back then. They had some, they had Andrew Jones and Chipper, and Klesko. I mean, they, Brian Jordan, they were just some good teams. And, like, going in there in Atlanta, with Hirschbeck behind the plate and Glavin on the mound, was like, you got to be ready. I mean, you have to expand the zone. And first AB, I he calls one of those uh, off the plate, four or five inches of strike, and then Glavin comes inside and Javi catches it high but pulls it down and he rings me up. And I turned around to Hirschbeck and I said, give our guy the same shit. And I started walking to the dugout. He kind of followed me. I got in the dugout. Jimmy Williams is like, oh, Frito, uh, what'd you say to him? I was like, I said, give our guy the same shit, Jimmy. He goes, oh, you better you better be ready to swing the bat. <laughs> and he rung me up two more times that game. 
that you remember those days, if you said something to the umpire, one AB, the rest of the game, they were going to try and hose you. Oh yeah. Yeah. I would do that. And then the only time, and, and, you know, I think I'm pretty mild mannered, but I, I would get thrown out. And like, to your point, when you go back and look at a video and, and I'm, that was one thing that made me really sad is I had a great eye at the plate. I really did. And I think that that's part of, you know, hitting the ball where it's pitched and using the field, using the whole field, whatever, but just owning that strike zone, right? Just being just, um, just a tyrant for, for ball strike, right? Fighting for those ball strikes. And so I would get thrown out usually like later in the game when the game was decided, it would be my last at bat, right? Cause you don't want to get thrown out in the, your first at bat, right? I feel like that's a very selfish move, right? So if you see a hitter that gets thrown out of a game in the, in his first at bat, I'm like, I always tell myself, I'm like, he didn't want to play today. He did not want to play today if he's getting thrown out in his first at bat, right? No, he hurt the team. Yeah. And so, and then the next day, you know, I'd be out there again and, and then I'd, I'd smooth it over with him, right? Because I know that, like, to your point, you know, those guys would hold a grudge. And especially when there's no accountability, when C.B. Buckner is still, you know, umpiring and Angel Hernandez, there's no accountability on that side. So you know that they're going to be around. And it's a small league, right, at the end of the day. And yeah. so I'd always try and smooth it over. I'm like, man, you know, my bad yesterday. I was probably too close to take. Even though I knew it was a ball, it was just better to to land on the grenade and fight for another day. Yeah, I said, hey man, my bad yesterday. I uh, you know kind of lost it. I've been struggling, and I just want to say, you know, I went and looked, and that was a good pitch, even though you know it wasn't. That yes, be the dude will be like, all right, I'll give him a chance next time because <laughs> I uh, because they hold grudges. They do hold grudges. Oh my gosh! So who's I can never remember the guy's name. Who's the umpire that that messed up the perfect game for Galarraga? Jim Joyce. Jim Joyce. So we're in Minnesota, and we're beating him pretty bad. And, and you, like you said earlier, um, you know we're fighting for every AB, every AB. I mean, I don't know. I, I have one bad week, I could get sent out of here, and and so I'm fighting for every AB. So it doesn't matter if we're winning by eight and I hit it high chopper. I'm gonna try to get an infield hit. That hit adds up by the end of the year. So sure enough, I hit a high chopper on the on the turf in the Metrodome, and I beat it out by a step. And he rung me up, and I was I was pissed, and then. Uh, I go out in the field to play defense. He's the first base umpire. And he goes, hey, man, I owe you one. I was like, all right, Jim. Thanks, bud. And I'm still not happy because I feel like he cost me a hit. So next AB, I'm hitting. Check swing. They appeal first base. <laughs> Jim Joyce goes, ha! And I just <laughs> put my hands up in the air. And I said, I thought you owed me one. <laughs> and he, you know, he still owes me one to this day. Yeah, that's uh, – you know, right? Because – like you weren't a very high draft pick, probably didn't get a lot of money to sign. I didn't get a high, wasn't a high draft. I didn't get a ton of money to sign. So just because you're playing in the major leagues and, and you're hitting 300, you still have the same mentality, right? That every hit, it doesn't matter if it comes in April and it doesn't matter how pretty it is or how ugly it is. The same hit you get in April is the same hit you get in September. So yeah, they all count. Yeah. And those one or two hits, I mean, you know, it would hurt be painful because our goal, I know your goal as well as mine was to hit 300 every year and hitting yeah. 98 to me would be a good season, but a little disappointing because I didn't reach the goal that I was trying to reach. Oh man. In 1997, I hit 288 Frito. 
And I came back home and I thought I was the worst player in the league. Isn't that terrible? <laughs> it is. I mean, I know you hit 296 for your career. I hit 290 uh, going into my last year in Toronto. I was hurt. My knee was jacked up. Um, and I had my worst year hitting 246. And I felt like the worst player ever. It's like 246. Yeah. And now you look around baseball and the major leagues as a whole this past year hit 243. Man, I didn't even know it was that high. That's incredible. 243. Best players on the planet can't go one for four. Yeah, there is a lot of, I mean, you talk about the hitting gurus and you talk about the, the launch angles. And and look, a few years ago, like the, the, the hitting gurus that you're talking about, you're like, well, shoot. I mean, and I remember having a conversation with our scouting director at the time. And he's like, and we were talking about Yonder Alonzo, right? And he's like, and then he was having success in Oakland or something like that when he was with the Padres and never really tapped in any power. And then he went to Cleveland and had a pretty good season. And he's like, oh, he's had a swing change, Jeff. And I'm like looking at the same video and I'm like, you're, you're showing me a video of a down pitch that he's dropping the barrel on. It's like, you know what? <laughs> when you and I got a pitch that was down and in, there probably was a little bit of a, a launch angle where you dropped the barrel on it, right? Drop the so, head. What's that? Just drop the head. You Drop do. the head. Yeah. So yeah, on that pitch, on that angle. Yeah. I'm not going to just swing down on a ball. That's, that's, you know, already down, right? right? You're going to drop the barrel and it's going to create like this little launch angle. It's a natural launch angle. You're just trying to get the barrel, the bat to the ball. And I was like, yeah, I don't know about that. I think that, you know, I think that he's just somehow miraculously come up a little bit more bat speed. So I don't think there's any swing change going on. But when, when the balls were juiced, and they were like, they, the balls were juiced a few years ago, for sure, right? Even though, you know, no one will go on record saying it was. But, I mean, I think that those guys, you know, I don't think they did any swing changes. I think that you and I were taught to hit the inside top half of the ball, right? And so I think that, I think that you could train maybe to hit maybe the middle inside of the ball, Right. And if you're using a juiced ball, you know, why wouldn't you want to hit the ball in the air? Right? Right. I mean, it's so obvious that something happened because they used those balls in AAA. And AAA had over a 50%. They used a major league ball, I don't know how many years ago, three or four years ago. And 50% or 54% increase in home runs in one year. Guys get that much better. I mean, the ball was flying out of the park when you when when we were playing. I know people. I say this all the time, but it was very difficult for guys who weren't the big power hitters to hit a home run to the opposite field. It almost never happened. And then I'm seeing guys like Altuve, little guys, just pimping homers that are going 15 rows up in the opposite field. I'm like, wait a minute. I mean, I could see Juan Gonzalez doing that. Right, Frank Thomas, but Altuve. Right, something something was amiss. Right. Well, I mean, no coincidence that Major League Baseball purchased the Rawlings Baseball Company around that. Right. right. I think that I think that you can do that. I, I would say that I remember, like statistically speaking, I think I had my best season was nineteen ninety six, Frito, mm -hmm. and I feel like that year the ball was a little bit souped up that was the year that like to your point like juan gonzalez i think he had 100 rbis at the break 101 <laughs> i'll never forget it
101. I think Edgar Martinez had like 40 doubles at the break. <laughs> you know, something silly. I think that was the year that Brady Anderson hit 50 homers. Um, you know, I, I finished 11th in the American League in hitting that year, and I hit 325. Oh, you went a batting title this year. Right, 325, exactly. So um, I think there's 13 guys across Major League Baseball, maybe not even that many, that uh, hit over 300 this year, the whole league. I know. It's crazy. Well, what do you think? Why, why do you think that is? Well, I, to me, it's the idea that a uh, couple things, that we got to hit the ball in the air. We can't beat the shift. Uh, we have to hit it over the – the infielders, and that don't worry about cutting down your swing with two strikes just to make contact. Because if you hit the ball on the ground, you're out anyway. Um, just keep your A swing and try and drive the ball with two strikes. Yeah, I could see that. I mean, you and I had we had a huge sample size, right, of at-bats. Mm-hmm. So if a right-handed pitcher is throwing at you and they have all this data and you've had, you know, over – 1500 at bats against right-handed pitching they're gonna have a pretty good idea where you hit the ball on the ground yes yes so that that being said um you know i mean let's say you're facing randy johnson and he leaves one out over the plate for you and you hit one right by his ear right and the second baseman you are standing on the and you're standing in it and you catch a line drive that's really defeating, is it not? Oh, my God. I, I see that happen, and I'm like, I would be so pissed off if that happened to me. Because you're getting – you're like, okay. You know, and we – you and I both know it's like when you face like the Schillings and the Johnsons of the world. You're like, hey, man, one for fours, that's a good day, right, off those guys, right? You're just trying to scratch one out. Heck, yeah. You know, and if you get two, that's great. But, you know, so then you hit this bullet – right over his ear and you're standing there, I mean, that would be really hard, hard for me to take. Yeah, me too. And I, I, it's funny you say that because I remember going to Kansas city facing Kevin Apier. I'm hitting two hole. Otis Nix is hitting lead off and we get up there, you know, first inning and, and Otis goes, you just got to get one today. You just got to get one today because you knew against those guys, you're lucky if you got one hit and you're happy. You know, the, whenever you face the guys that were the, the number one starters, man, you're trying to get one hit. If you get a hit your first A-B, you're like, man, you start feeling good about yourself. But uh, so do you think – I hear this a lot. Do you think that pitching today is better than when we played? Pitching. Do we lose today? Yep. Let's go. Well, uh, let's close it out right here. Okay. Then we'll go to part two.